0: One, two. Glory to God. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. It's not really mine, but. All right, y'all. Um, as you can so clearly tell, I am not Pastor Mark. Um, they are out of town today. Um, but I have the privilege, the honor of taking up the pulpit this morning, so I'm really thankful to them. If you guys are thankful that you have such great pastors, go ahead, just give them an applause. They're going to watch this later. Give them some applause. Um, I'm so thankful that we've got pastors who know the Word of God, and they preach it um, unashamed. Amen? Come on, in the last days, we need a church, we need people who are unashamed to preach the truth, to declare the gospel, to not water it down and put it in a really likable message so that people feel good about themselves. No, we declare the truth, and Pastor Mark, Pastor Tasha, our ministers who do that, they declare the truth unashamed. I'm so thankful for them, and I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll say this too, this is for free, this is not part of my message, but... Um, I would, how many of you all been to the Denver Zoo? Anybody? Okay. You've been to the Denver Zoo. It's, it's awesome. they got tons of animals there. But one of the overwhelming, overriding themes there of, of the signs that you see is do not feed the animals. And you got to think why would they why would they tell you to not feed the animals and it might become very obvious to you here you might already know but there's there's a few different reasons you know one for your own safety you know you're trying to lean over the fence and, and dangle a snickers for for a lion that's that's really not beneficial for your arm um, you know something might happen and but the more important reason is that this is that what you feed those animals is not what they need Okay, it w- it's garbage really to them. They have a specific diet that the zookeeper knows about. And I'm making this comparison. I am not calling you an animal, okay? So let's just clear that up right now. I'm not calling you an animal, but let's just let's just relate this back to the word of God. Pastor Mark, do you guys believe that Pastor Mark is your pastor? Perfect. Then he is your shepherd. You are a sheep. Again, I'm not trying to call you an animal. But if we're relating it to the word of God, he is the shepherd of this flock we are the sheep and just like a zookeeper knows what the animals are supposed to eat so does pastor mark because he's not just pulling things out of left field he is getting divine revelation from god for this church so i want to encourage you if you call new creation church your home then pastor mark pastor tasha they are your pastors god is giving them the food that you need Come on, the food that you need. Listen, this church has a vision. If you're called here, you're not just called to pick up a seat. You're called to be attached to this vision. And I'm not saying you can't listen to anybody else. It's I listen to other people. It's great to, to supplement with those things. But the main portion of your nutrition spiritually should be coming from this church. Come on. Come on. Those big name pastors are not your pastor. Listen, they've got their own vision for their own church. And if you go there, then you line up with that vision. But come on, if you're here, I encourage you, feast on the word, feast on the messages that Pastor Mark is bringing every single Sunday morning. I guarantee you, it's, you're going to see results in your life, because God knows who you are, God knows that you live in Colorado, God knows that you come to NCC, and he's making sure that that whole thing is working. How he's, he, he, put, he put the five-fold ministry into place, he put leaders, he put pastors in certain positions, and he places you in the body as he pleases. So if you're here, it's not by accident. Listen to Pastor Mark, get fed, and watch your life be transformed, amen? That is for free. All right, this morning, well, uh, Pastor Mark started a series uh, last Sunday morning called The Church Undeniable, all right? Who was here for last week's sermon? Man, that was powerful, especially if you were here for 8.30 service. Man, um, good stuff. The Undeniable Word, uh, or The Undeniable Church. We are in our second week of this series, and uh, the church in the last days is called to be set apart. It's called to be light. In the darkness, we are called to be undeniable. Look at your neighbor and say, undeniable. I think of, I think of uh, uh, Avengers when Thanos is sitting there. Has anybody seen that movie? I'm, a, I'm a young. And he goes, I am inevitable. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, we're not Thanos, and, and, and that's not going to happen. But listen, the power of God in you is undeniable. Amen. The power of God to the world, if you bring it to them, it will be undeniable. Amen. So say this, the power of God within me is undeniable. Amen. All right. So to be an undeniable force for the kingdom of God is what the church is called to do. But in our endeavor to become an undeniable force, we can't fall into this trap of being a defiant force force and Pastor Mark touched on this briefly last week. You know, there's a difference between being undeniable and defiant. So over the last few years, the enemy really has used various tools to separate and divide us, mainly media and things that are happening in our government. He's trying to separate us and have us take sides and don't 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 misunderstand me. There is right, there is wrong. You need to take a stand for what is right. But there's two main differences uh, there's there's very stark differences between a defiant church and an undeniable church. Listen, here's the difference. A defiant church is known primarily by what they oppose. I'll say that again. A defiant church is known primarily by what they oppose. An undeniable church is known by the evidence of God's power that has and is transforming their lives when we think about undeniable sometimes we think like oh it can't be stopped oh and we're just gonna go in and just and just move things around and shake things up and we're gonna cause change bless god well yeah i i I hope uh, maybe but maybe let's have a little more tact than that if we're known primarily by what we're opposed we're really just being a defiant church okay he wants a church that allows his presence that allows his power to infiltrate every single aspect of our lives, to let it transform us, and that transformation would be so radical that when the world looks into our lives, when people who don't care about God or don't even believe in God look at your life, they have to say, it is undeniable. I can't deny the fact that there is something other than you working in your life, and I'm pretty sure it's God, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but that person's life, is just evidence that God is doing something. Come on, that's how it should be. When people look into our lives, it should be undeniable. Listen, the world does not need your undeniable opinion. Okay, the world doesn't need your undeniable opinion on Facebook, okay? It doesn't, it needs the undeniable power of God to bring healing and transformation. Come on, when someone looks into my life The first thing that they kind of catch on to shouldn't be Jonathan Rossler is opposed to Congressional Bill H.R. 941, although I might be opposed to that. Is that the first thing that people see when they look into your life? You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think that might be an invitation for everyone. Listen, when you're walking and you're in your workplace, people have the opportunity to taste of your life, okay, because you have influence. What's the, what are they tasting? Are they tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Wow. You know, because the Bible says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads men to repentance, which means it leads them to change their mind and their opinion about him. But if the only thing that they're tasting is your Facebook feed riddled with opposition to the left or to the right or to this or to that, we're missing it. And again, there is right and wrong. I'm not saying don't stand up for what is right. But let's make the main thing the main thing the undeniable power of God transforming our lives. Because if we want to bring transformation to the world, let's participate here, who wants to bring transformation to those around them? Well, it first has to start with us, letting the undeniable power of God work in our hearts and produce fruit that then can be brought to others. Amen? Amen. So when people look into my life, I want them to see that he's undeniable. I want them to see, man, God is real. I want them to look into my life and think and see that it's undeniable that, that Jesus saves, that it's undeniable that Jesus is the healer, that it's undeniable that Jesus brings freedom, that it's undeniable that God is, is love. Come on, they, The Bible says that they will know us by our love, for one another, by our love walk. So it's just a good little checkup this morning. How's your love walk? How's your Facebook feed? <laughs> How's, you know, uh, if, if your suggested videos is just a bunch of political garbage, then maybe you need to be watching some other stuff. Come on. It's, it's important. We need to be the undeniable church, not the defiant church. Amen? Hopefully that rings true with, with somebody this morning. In order for the power of God to become undeniable to the world, his power must first transform our lives, but that cannot happen until Jesus becomes undeniable in our hearts. And I want to spend a few minutes this morning. I'm actually going to be talking about the undeniable word of God. But before I get that, get to that point, let's just talk about Jesus becoming undeniable in our hearts. And I was praying last night. We had corporate prayer. And I talked about sometimes we get the cart before the horse a little bit. And we talk about being world changers and revival happening. Um, and we pray about it. We pray for the rain. We pray for the rain. But listen, I truly believe that When the Bible talks about the rain falling on the just and the unjust alike, I am the person who will bring the rain to the unjust. We go into the darkness. We bring transformation power. You know what I'm saying? If you want revival, it's you, you going into those places and being the revival that you want to see, but that can't happen until there's a revival in your own heart, and Jesus has to become undeniable in your own hearts, and you might say, well... Uh, Jonathan, I'm saved. Jesus is in my heart. What are you talking about? Right. Well, this is, this is what true salvation is all all about. Yes, Jesus is in your heart, but how much space is he really allowed to have in there? All right. How much space is he really allowed to have? Okay. So we love to look at Jesus as savior. We say, Yep, Jesus is my savior, guaranteed. Boom. He saves. Jesus saves. I got a I got a shirt that says it. Jesus saves. But we have trouble with the Lord part, all right? I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to go to heaven, and Jesus is my Savior, and woo! But it's different. You know, we treat it like this. You know, here, Jesus, please um, come into my heart, and you can be Lord of, of the living room. Yeah? You can, you can be Lord of the kitchen, because I'm a terrible cook anyways, Right, you can be lord of of the guest room downstairs because obviously because that's where you're gonna be staying, <laughs> and uh, uh, but over here, this room, this this room is my private study, and as the name suggests, it's very private, and so you cannot go in there. But you can be lord of all this stuff, and and listen, the kitchen, the the, the living room, the guest room. Come on, you don't you have enough? And, and 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 by the way, God, I don't wanna I don't wanna keep nagging you, but. Um, could you leave those two free tickets to heaven on the table for me? I mean, it sounds silly, but that's kind of how we treat it. If you got your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans 10, chapter 9, or uh, verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is like the, the evangelist's uh, go-to Scripture that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is not a trick question, okay? So don't feel like you're being fooled. What comes first, the Lord part or the saved part? Somebody just shout it out. Lord, okay, it's not a trick question. He says you gotta confess and gotta believe that he's Lord and then you will be saved. So the Lord part, making him Lord part, comes before being saved part. And if you've ever heard John Bevere, he he puts it this way. He says, uh, um, he presents this idea. He says, Jesus cannot become your savior until he is first your Lord. Lord means master. Lord means ruler. Lord means commander. So if I invite him into my heart and give him, complete control of only two-thirds of the house, well, guess what, he's not Lord. So if he's not Lord, he can't be Savior, and I'm not trying to freak you out and think that you're not going to heaven, but let's just talk about this for a minute. Is Jesus Lord of all? Is he Lord of everything in my life? Listen, how many here rent house, rent? You know, a building, like you're, you're, you're renting a place to live? We've got a few people. How many of you guys are landlords? Some of you? Okay. Well, if you've ever rented, my first place with my wife uh, or um, my first place, not not with my wife, my first place when I was in college, I had to rent, and I learned very quickly that I was not in charge, and if I had a certain patio furniture out on the patio uh, that they didn't like, they had the ability to to take it out. They were the landlord. I was not in charge. I was just renting from them, okay? Let me tell you this. Jesus is not renting your heart from you, okay? Jesus doesn't have to provide first and last month's rent. Jesus owns it all, okay? He is landlord. He is master. He is commander. He must own it all. I'll say that again. He must own it all. And listen, if there was a stack of stones up here, I wouldn't be throwing them. I'm working on it as well. Listen, it's a process. It is a process making Jesus Lord of everything. But we got to let him in. To the private study you know if we're always so worried about what he'll think about if he goes into the private study and I don't want you to see the backyard it's just dirt and weeds and I'm really working on it but listen he already knows he already knows what's in the private study he already knows that your backyard is a mess he already knows that he desires to come in and what is he going to do there he's going to rearrange the study he's going to Redecorate. He's going to begin to water the backyard so you're not ashamed of it anymore. He's going to bring transformation in your life. Listen, for God to become undeniable, you first have to stop denying Him access. And when you let Him into every fabric of your being, that's when the change can take place. Amen? It must become all of His. He moves out the junk, He paints the walls, He starts watering the backyard. And it will be undeniable, and then people will look at your life and say, man, it must be God. That must be God. It's undeniable, the change that has taken place in their lives. So who here wants to take the challenge with me? Unlocking the door to the private study. Come on. It might be cracked right now. It might be halfway open. It might still be locked. I hope after something I say today, you, 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 you endeavor to let him in. Come on. Because Jesus can't be Savior until he is Lord of everything, amen? I don't just wanna say that he is Lord, I want him to actually be Lord, all right? And that's the difference between belief and conviction, okay? We don't need to keep passing down beliefs. Belief is just what you believe. Conviction is what you believe, why you believe it, and you applying it in your life, amen? So now I'm a father of two. I want to not pass down beliefs. That doesn't really change anything. I wanna pass down conviction, amen? Take take the challenge with me this morning. We're gonna unlock the private study. In order for the power of God to become undeniable to the world, his power must first transform our lives, but that cannot happen until Jesus becomes undeniable in our heart. Let's give him access this morning, amen? We'll give him some access. So uh, this is how the church becomes undeniable, letting Jesus transform us and then bringing that transformation to the world. Um, So let's talk about the word undeniable for just a minute. Um, I'll I'll read the definition. Undeniable means unable to be denied or disputed, proven, unassailable, or incontestable. So when I think about uh, things in life that are undeniable, there's a few things that come to mind. How many of you basketball fans out there? Only like four. Yikes. All right. Uh, We live in rural Colorado. What do we expect? Okay, when I think about someone who was undeniable in the paint, I think of Shaq. Come on. I think of Shaq. How many baseball fans do we got? A few more. Awesome. I played baseball in high school. And listen, when your team was down, the power of the rally cap is when you turn your hat inside out. You're down by a few runs in the ninth, and you got to make some magic happen. you got to get some runs on the board. The power of the rally cap is undeniable. Come on. I remember when I was in high school, we were playing Olathe and we were in the eighth inning down by eight runs and we just kept scoring, kept scoring, kept scoring. I look back and everybody on the team had their rally caps on. I said, it's undeniable. That's why, that's why. It's undeniable. Here's another thing that's undeniable. Every drink tastes better out of a glass bottle. Come on, can I get a witness? Every drink tastes better out of a glass bottle. Listen, if you have the opportunity to drink Coke out of a can or out of a glass bottle? And especially if that glass bottle is if there's real sugar in that Coke? Woo! Come on. I'm trying to give up soda, but you can't pass on a drink out of a glass bottle. It's just it's just the truth. It's undeniable. And lastly, I'm a father now. And as much as I don't want to admit it, the dad bod is starting to become undeniable. <laughs> I'm working on that. Okay? So, I want to talk this morning about the best tool that we have to bring undeniable transformation in our lives, and that's this, the undeniable word of God. Who here has their Bible this morning? Just raise it up with me when we'll go back to Sunday school. The B-I-B-L-E, B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, amen? We'll talk about this for a little bit. So just like we need to let Jesus become undeniable in our hearts, we need to do the same with his word. Uh, turn over to Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's powerful. But listen, it can only be this way if we let it. Profound revelation, I know. It can only be life-changing if we let it. Listen, the word on the page is powerless. It's the word in your heart that produces change. So letting the word of God not just become like any other book, I can read it and say, nice stories. Or I can let the Spirit of God make it become alive to me, and it goes from the head down into the heart, and it produces change. The Word of God is planted like a seed in your heart. Listen, the Bible uh, is meant to be written upon the tablets of your heart. It should be in there doing something. It should be creating change. It should be uh, uh, coming out anytime there's a a problem or, or a circumstance that is not ideal. The first thing out of your mouth should be what's planted in your heart. And if what's planted in your heart is not the word of God, well, hey, again, the stone pile is still left untouched. I'm not throwing any stones, but we have to make the change. We have to make the change, all right? The word on the page has no power until you let it enter your heart. Its power is undeniable, and actually, the physical, this physical written word of God has been undeniable for about 3,000 years now, and I want to talk about that for just a minute. We're going to take a dive into history because I just think it's so cool about how this thing came to be and how it survived thousands of years so that you and I may read it and write it upon our own hearts, amen? Amen. So let's dive into this. So the Bible is really, and how it came to be, is a miracle in and of itself. So the Bible is not just one book. This might be recap for some of you, but I love talking about this stuff. So the Bible is not just one book, okay? It's uh, it's not just written by one or a few authors. It's not just co-written, right? It's a compilation of 66 books. It's split into two main sections. We've got the Old Testament, which is 39 books, and we've got the New Testament, which is 27 books. And the 66 of books of the Bible were written by over 40 different writers. They lived in 10 different countries, spread out over three continents. They spoke different languages. They came from different backgrounds, each author writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 6, uh, uh, 3.16 says that all Scripture is given By inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. If you look at that word inspiration in the Greek, it literally means God-breathed. So God breathed on the hearts of man. He inspired them to write what they wrote. It's not just some guy writing a nice story. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The writers included prophets, poets, kings, doctors, herdsmen, tax collectors, Theologians, scribes, fishermen, tent makers, all of the authors have one single uniformed, unified theme, which is God's love for humanity and the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. Listen, you can literally find Jesus in every single book. You open the page, go to every single book in the Bible, you will find Jesus. Turn to Luke 24. Luke Chapter 24, verse 27, I'm gonna read it out of the Passion. It says this, this is Jesus talking. Uh, uh, It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he carefully unveiled to them the revelation of himself throughout the scriptures. So he sat them down and said, you you wanna know why I'm the Messiah? We can find me in every single book here. Bust out the scroll. That's me, that's me, that's me. Jesus unveiled throughout every scripture that, he, that the prophecies concerning himself, he did them, amen? The authors, they wrote in homes, they wrote in prisons, they wrote in ships, they wrote in caves, they wrote in palaces, they wrote on hillsides. The diversity of each writer was so great, yet their story remained the same. And their writings, listen, their writings spread out over a period of 1,600 years, Some writers have no clue what the other wrote. There could be no collaboration, there could be no collusion, yet they all wrote the same thing. Imagine if I gave 50 of you a piece of paper and you ripped it up in any any type of way that you wanted and you didn't know what I was gonna use it for, and then I was able to make a perfect map of the United States out of that. That's pretty much the probability of how the Bible came to be. So many different authors over 1,600 years, 40 different writers, that's spread out over 55 generations. 55 generations producing 66 books yet when they're placed together they fit together with perfect unity harmony about them they fit together like a jigsaw listen the word of god is a miracle the word of god is undeniable come on it's undeniable roughly 25 to 30% of the bible is prophecy and i'll just give you a brief uh, definition of prophecy it's history written in advance lot of prophecies made, and a lot of them have been fulfilled in our day and age. Come on, in our day and age. Like Israel being restored as a nation, that happened in 1948. There was over 300 prophecies made about Jesus. The last book that was written before Jesus came, 400 years before he was born. Yet Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy, every single one of them. And I won't get into this too much, but... The probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight is one in ten to the seventeenth power. That is one sextillion. That's a that's not a fun word to say. It's a lot. That's seventeen zeros. Come on, that's just hit the probability of him fulfilling eight. But he fulfilled all of them. Come on, the Bible is God's miracle book. It's undeniable. Let's look at the persecution that it went through. Um, turn to First Peter. One, uh, we'll read 23 through 25. For you have been born again, but not to a life that, is, that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Say, the word is eternal. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. Let's take another history lesson. In the 6th century B.C., Israel's king Jehoiakim burned sacred scrolls that were written by Jeremiah. He burned them, yet the word of God endured. In 164 B.C., after the death of Alexander the Great, the Greek ruler Antiochus, popularly, popularly known as The madman began a bloody persecution against Israel, slaying thousands of Jews. He invaded the temple in Jerusalem. He built an altar of Zeus right on top of the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense. Come on. And he commanded every single book of the law, every piece of scripture to be burned. And if anyone was caught with scripture, they were executed. Yet the word of God endured. Amen? In 303 AD, Roman Emperor Diocletian started what is now known as the Great Persecution, lasting for a decade. This was the worst persecution that the church has ever recorded to this day. We've never been persecuted as bad during the reign of Diocletian and his successors. Diocletian and and his successors, uh, Maximian, Galerius, and Constantinus, hunted Christians Like animals, they burned down all churches, they burned down every copy of scripture that they could find. And when Diocletian finally advocated his office, he made this statement, I have successfully eradicated Christianity and the Bible from the face of the earth. Yet, the word of God endured. Amen? The word of God endured. In the 1500s, during the dark ages, where all forms of learning and literacy were suppressed, They were suppressed to keep the government and the Catholic Church in power. Come on. The Dark Ages. The Catholic Church banned Bible ownership. They banned Bible reading. All copies outside of church hierarchy were burned. And the word of God was denied to Christians for over a thousand years. A thousand years of not being able to read the Bible. Yet we find one in every hotel room today. The word of God endures. In the 1700s, French philosopher Voltaire, who hated and attacked the church, predicted that within 100 years of his death, Christianity and the Bible would be swept from existence and memory to be forgotten forever. Yet the word of God endured. And here's the funny part. Just 50 years after he died, the Geneva Bible Society got a hold of his printing press and began to print Bibles, the very printing press that he printed all of his secular literature. And not only that, they bought his house and they stacked Bibles in his house, historical. Yet the word of God endured. And even today, today, 2021, there are multiple countries where being a Christian is banned, where owning a Bible will put you in prison or even worse, killed. Today, like, I've got an iPhone. And I have the word of God on my iPhone. But if I'm caught with it in certain countries, I'm going to be put in prison. I'm going to be executed. But the word of God still remains. One thing that is, 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 is so evident throughout history, that the, the, the worse the persecution was, the greater and stronger the church became. The greater and stronger it became. You know, after Diocletian said that he eradicated every single Bible, who was the emperor after him? Constantine. And what did he do? He was able to produce 50 Bibles right like that within 25 hours. He had 50 Bibles, and he began to spread the word throughout the churches of Constantinople and throughout the world. The word of God has remained for thousands and thousands of years. Amen? Glory to God. The word of God is undeniable. So don't you just appreciate this a little bit more, just a little more? You might have already known this, but it's just it's so cool this is a miracle this is the, the way it was formed has to be god the way it survived has to be god it is undeniable and it's it's powerful it's precious it was preserved throughout time so that you and i could read it and let its undeniable power change our lives so we've just taken this journey through time right we can clearly see that the tangible word of god is undeniable but despite all of these amazing facts, despite my presentation, you might still have questions, all right? You might still have doubts. You might still be wondering, uh, really? You might. You might still have the door to the private study half open or merely cracked, or it might still be closed. You might have questions and opinions about God and his word, that aren't changing despite what I just said. And let me just tell you this, that's okay. Let me rephrase that. It's okay to have those thoughts, but it's not okay to let those thoughts dominate your life and halt your faith, okay? One of my main, maybe not main, but a frequent prayer of mine is, God, help my unbelief. Help my own belief. And I'm reminded of, well, it's pulled from that story um, out of Mark chapter 9 when Jesus is up on the, on, the, on the hillside with a few of his disciples. He comes back down. He finds a bunch of his disciples and scribes arguing. They're debating. They're yelling. They've been trying to cast a demon out of this boy, and they can't do it. And uh, it, it, what he does is, first of all, he scolds his disciples. He scolds the scribes. And then he goes up to the man, the father of the boy, And he tells them what's going on, and he says, listen, if you can only believe, all things are possible for those who believe. And what does he do? He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to overcome my unbelief. In other words, Lord, I believe. I have faith, but if we're being honest here, I got some questions now. I'm a little shaken up. You know, the last hour or so, all the yelling, all the shouting, all the arguing, all the failed exorcisms of my son, Um, you know what? It's stirring up just a little bit of doubt, and um, I have some questions, and I need your help. You ever been there? Come on, as a Christian, you get shaken up just a little bit. So... Lord, I need your help. Jesus, this is funny. Jesus was annoyed at his disciples and the scribes for their lack of faith, but he had some compassion on this guy um, and his kind of seeming lack of faith. It reminded me of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when God and Paul are kind of um, having a a word war for a little bit there. And uh, he ends up saying to Paul, He says, Hey, my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect. In your weakness. So, Paul was acknowledging his inadequacy, and so was that boy's father. And, and this acknowledgement of our own inadequacies is really what in, enables the grace of God to work in our lives. Come on, God doesn't save the, the righteous. You're not perfect. You do have doubts. That's okay. But when you acknowledge your inadequacy, that's what allows the grace of God to come into your life. His strength being made perfect in your weakness. So it's okay to have those questions, but what you do with them is the key. See, when I don't under, understand something, I can be like this, the, the scribes and the disciples. When there's something in the word of God doesn't make sense, I can take the two, two routes here. I can be like the scribes and the disciples who were arguing and debating for however long they were. And that didn't produce faith at all. If it did, that boy would have been healed. But they argued about it until Jesus came. I can either argue about it or just admit, you know what, God, this is an area of weakness for me. I don't necessarily understand this, and so I really just need to acknowledge this and rely on your grace to help me get through this. To help me build my faith despite not knowing kind of what what the answer is in this in this moment when i read this scripture i don't necessarily get it or there might seem like there's a hole there might seem like this this doesn't add up if i just stay there or if i just decide to debate and argue it it's not going to produce faith it's not so i can say this god it, it doesn't make sense to me but i don't have to figure it out i thank you that your grace is enough And when I am weak, you are strong and move on. All right, move on. One minister said this, analysis is paralysis. In order to grow in your faith, you have to get to a point where you stop trying to figure it out and you simply believe. What did Jesus do with this man? He brought him back to the simplicity of the truth, which is simply believe. He didn't sit the man down and say, here's all the reasons why they couldn't do it. And here's, let's look at your own faith here and let's just talk about why No, no, no. He brought him back to simply believing. Simply believing. That's why we call it the simple gospel, because really, in all reality, it is very simple. You just believe. You believe. That's what faith is. We don't believe because we have all the answers. We believe despite not having the answers. Genuine relationships are built on a foundation of trust. Imagine, let's just I'm not going to do the actual example I thought about maybe doing it, but a trust fall exercise. Um, you know, if I had John, and I don't know if Jordan is here, but if I had them stand there, and, and if I blindfolded myself and I, I fell backwards into their arms, um, I would trust that they, they would catch me because they love me. They have my best interests at heart, and, and, and falling on my head, it, it would not be the best for me. So I trust them because I know them and I know their character. It would be a different story if the only way I would fall is if I'm facing them and I take the blindfold off and I need to know the relative velocity I would be hitting their arms at compared to the strength of both of them combined. That's me creating a perfect scenario, answering all the questions and and probabilities before I take the plunge. That's not trust. That's not trust at all. And listen, I don't need to necessarily know how something works in order for it to produce results in my life. I don't understand how my TV works, but I watch it. Come on. Trust is not built on me setting the terms and the conditions and having all the answers. Trust is built by getting to know God through his word and knowing the content of his character. See, if you're waiting to figure it all out before you open the door to the private study, he'll be forever sitting on the outside waiting to come in. So we open the door, we let him in, we trust that he loves us, we trust that he's remodeling, and that it's for our good. So in conclusion, guys, uh, when it comes to his word being undeniable, one definition of that word undeniable is the word proven. And how I prove something, how do you go about proving something is you put it to the test. I'm challenging you this morning. Put the word of God to the test. Put it to the test. There might be areas in here that don't make sense. There might be things that you may never understand. But I tell you what, the things that you do understand, put it to the test in your life and let it produce results. And if it works, it works. Come on, it's that simple. If it works, it works, right? <clears throat> test it for yourself. I'm challenging you all this morning. Put the word of God to the test. It's not meant to be just read, it's meant to be applied. Uh, you take a passage of scripture, you read it, you apply it, and you let it produce results in your life. And really this very simple you know, two-step process is what has ended pointless arguments with other people and even with myself. And I still have to always come back to this. Because I tend to think a little bit more intellectually sometimes. Uh, but I put those arguments to rest with this. You know what? I'm going to put the word to the test. Right? You know, you'd say, well, Jonathan, how do we know that what was written back then is what we're supposed to be reading today? And that passage of scripture wasn't really written to you. So you can't, it, you can't really apply it in your life. And don't let some intellectual decide what is truth in your life. Come on. I'm speaking to myself a lot, too. Test it. Let it produce results. Listen, like 2 Timothy 1.7, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Declare that over yourself for a while and see if it doesn't produce results in your life. See if you don't have more peace. See if you're not anxious. Come on. Meditate on the things that God tells you to meditate on. And if it produces word in your life, then it works. Done deal. Come on. We can't get caught up in analyzing every little thing. Do the work, put it to the test, apply it to your life, acknowledge your doubts, let it be an invitation for grace, simply believe and watch the power of the word of God become undeniable in your life. Can you stand up with me this morning?